War II and the Russian invasion of Ukraine with EU diplomat Søren Liborius. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. How does Russian propaganda manipulate World War II and how is it using the allied victory over Nazism to justify its current invasion of Ukraine? How does Russia make the West into an enemy and how has this process evolved since 2022? My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. In this episode, I speak to Søren Liborius, a senior diplomat in the EU External Action Service with a special focus on Russia and Eastern Europe. This episode is made by Ukraine World in partnership with EU versus Disinfo, an EU project aimed at increasing public awareness and understanding of the Kremlin's disinformation operations. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine and Ukrainian Media NGO. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Søren Liborius, welcome to this podcast. Thank you very much. My pleasure. So let's talk about this uh, Russian ideology around the Second World War and around the victory in the Second World War. This idea um, that uh, this ideology, these emotions, this propaganda which is uh, around it. How do you think that Russian propaganda manipulates with the World War II and victory over Nazism and how it is using this victory to justify the current invasion of Ukraine? Well, I think there are a couple of aspects, but but one of the most important ones perhaps is the attempt by the Kremlin to make a direct connection with uh, victory over Nazi Germany um, and uh, paralleling that with the necessity uh, to have a victory uh, over Ukraine branding uh, everything Ukrainian uh, as as Nazi and trying to to cast that as as, as equal to that of of the Nazi German regime uh, back in the 1930s and 40s um, I think also the very cynical uh, attempt to mobilize the Russian population kind of putting a demand in front of of ordinary Russians, you know, uh, you must uh, support uh, this uh, so-called special military operations. Everybody can see it's a full war. Uh, The same way as as you must uh, denounce uh, Nazi Germany. And uh, if you do not uh, follow that line, you are... uh, uh, having a a kind of wrong attitude, you are you are you are, it, it's high treason against, so to speak, the the raison d'être uh, of of Russia uh, as a state uh, today. Um, and obviously, it's also an attempt to appropriate or, or own the so to speak, the, the, uh, the story of, of the fight against Nazism in, 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 uh, in the Second World War, uh, somehow removing uh, the uh, understanding that, of course, uh, uh, Ukraine uh, and, and several other uh, areas uh, then in, in the Soviet Union were, were very harshly treated and, and, and suffered relatively more uh, than, than, than Russia. Uh, to claim ownership of this mafia role. When we travel through Ukraine right now, we try to talk to Ukrainian citizens who were under occupation of Russian soldiers in in the Kyiv Oblast, in, in, in Kharkiv region, in Donetsk region. Uh, we hear actually the same stories as when Russian soldiers, ordinary rank-and-file Russian soldiers are asked what is the reason, what is the cause of this war, why they came here. So some of them could not respond, obviously, but uh, some others just were saying that, look, we uh, we came here to liberate you from fascists, liberate Ukrainians from fascists. And that means that this propaganda was very much, very deep in minds of r- Russian ordinary people, including those soldiers. Many of them are very young, uneducated people. 
so do you think that Russians succeeded in, in this kind of a, a brainwashing its, its own population and giving this idea that they kind of need to repeat the Second World War? Well, I, uh, I would unfortunately have to, to recognize that um, the uh, Russian uh, program in uh, propaganda has been so strong that it is, uh, it is, it is uh, successful um, in, insofar as, as many uh, Russian soldiers, as you mentioned, uh, they reproduce this, this claim. And um, to me, it illustrates that if the situation is like in Russia today, that you own completely the information space, uh, censorship is uh, tough, uh, you control the outlets, then it is possible to have this message uh, sent out uh, in such a forceful way uh, that, that people um, start to, to internalize or, or even believe it. Um, and of course, the, the emotional aspect makes it very difficult to, uh, to resist it. Do you see the evolution of this idea? Uh, because it was obviously of this idea that Russia is fighting against Nazism. Because obviously it started initially with regard to Ukraine, and this was all those reference to Ukrainian history of the Second World War, to Ounopa and, and all this stuff. And, and this was, was kind of a an attempt to identify the Ukrainian independence itself, the idea of Ukrainian independence, with those very um, limited in history period of, uh, uh, let's say, of the 30s and of the 40s, when ideology of Ukrainian nationalists were, uh, of course, uh, quite radical. So do you, do, do you see that uh, evolution of this idea that starting from Ukraine, it was first applied to Ukraine and that it was probably, my impression is that it was uh, widened on other actors and... At some moment, Russians are right now saying that actually they fight against fascists in Ukraine, but they fight against fascists in Europe, they fight against fascists in the West, and the whole West is now became a, a fascist force. Do you see that? Yes, I mean, we can also document it with, uh, with thousands of, of cases we have stored in our EU versus uh, disinfo.eu uh, platform in its, in its database there. Um, so it, it's hard evidence that we can see that the Nazi myth has been one of the cornerstones uh, ever since, uh, well, the... Uh, not even uh, Maidan, but also before that. Um, but of course, accelerating very much after the Maidan, that this label has been branded on, on anything that has even a remote uh, opposing view to, uh, to the Kremlin narrative. Um, and I think one of the, the aspects is, of course, that because the, the myth about uh, the Russian modern state being the uh, the here to to or the, the modern expression of of the victory over fascist uh, nazi germany it is it is such a an easy tool to use and we have seen that over the course of especially of course the last uh, 14 15 months since the the, the full uh, scale war that this label has been put on on yet more and more and more people um as you mentioned, to the to the extent that that countries in the European Union, uh, where the support to Ukraine became uh, pronounced, uh, weapons deliveries, economic support, and so on, even just receiving refugees or people who were forced out of Ukraine, that 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 made them be labelled as as Nazis. Um, I would say that this over exaggeration has somehow led to a a situation across uh, in in the EU where this card has been overplayed um, um, we would come across uh, more and more often sentiments where where 
if you look at opinion polls across uh, Europe where, where people say, you know, they have they have gone off the rails, uh, uh, blaming every government being being a Nazi, everybody uh, uh, supporting uh, Ukrainians uh, uh, in the EU countries also being Nazis, uh, supplying this or that aid uh, being Nazi, Nazi, Nazi. Um, and of course, this is illustrating a, a divide between what's going on back in Russia and, and what's going on in, in Europe. That's interesting because uh, I think in the past years we have been kind of uh, accustomed to an idea that Russian propaganda is so strong that it, there are very few uh, tools to combat it uh, and uh, it's very difficult to combat it with just fact-checking because fact-checking just denounces certain lies but it doesn't destroy them so it doesn't hamper their dissemination. And then what you're saying is that uh, in Europe uh, we see that uh, Russia has overplayed certain cards. Uh, in Ukraine we can say that this war also testifies that Russia has become a hostage to its own disinformation, as if this, this py pyramid of disinformation, which spreads to the people, but which also goes in the power hierarchy of Russia itself, as if we see that probably Russian leadership was also disinformed about Ukraine, about its capacity to resist, about the fact that Ukrainians are uh, not, uh, not, not, not people who are occupied by a fascist junta, as Russian propaganda is saying, but rather people who really elect their government and support it during uh, the difficult times and support, of course, the, the, their country and their nation. So do you think that we actually, uh, unexpectedly maybe, are facing the situation when, when the propaganda shows that it can crack very quickly and it can have huge loopholes? Uh, yeah, I would, I would say that uh, in certain aspects and certain kind of narratives, for example, this Nazi, 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 I think that we are beginning to see that. Um, uh, I would, uh, however, caution uh, kind of a, a too uh, victorious uh, feeling that that uh, that all the uh, lies and all the disinformation and manipulation will be rejected by by each and every one uh, outside Russia. I, I think that is that is a, a bit too optimistic right now, um, but. I would certainly say that one should not uh, live in the perception that, uh, that 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 Moscow and Russia is is ten foot tall and everything that they they say uh, wave their hand and in and immediately uh, the whole world will 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 dance to that tune. I think this is wrong. Um, I do also think that. Uh, People back in Moscow would realize that they need to be to be more sophisticated. They need to have uh, manipulation and disinformation that evolves over time. That um, uh, piggyback on, for example, new issues such as delivery of sophisticated weaponry, aircraft. Uh, uh, massive support from from the European Union or, or the United States or others to make uh, stories uh, of this is fueling corruption, this is fueling terror groups, this is fueling weapons to ISIL in 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 the Middle East and and so on and so forth. And we need to be all the time following uh, what comes out of new narratives. Um, but I would I would say that a lot of the disinformation is is so repetitive that that one can can expect what to come. Um, we can see the 9th of May lingo that will claim this war is equal to that against uh, Hitler, uh, Nazi Germany, fascism. So. Mm, we we should not underestimate our own our own response if we prepare our societies uh, sufficiently and we we document and show uh, what lies are coming out. Uh, 
We sometimes say that the best cure against disinformation and, and manipulation is, is sunlight. Uh, get it out in the open, expose it, uh, without giving it uh, too much new uh, dissemination, obviously, but uh, debunk it, show it, uh, show the, uh, the tactics, the techniques, the procedures that the Kremlin engages in. Let us talk about these messages, disinformation messages linked to the World War II and the victory of Nazism that Russia is using right now, and maybe some new ones, not the repetitive stories about fascism, maybe they, they're inventing something new, uh, inventing some new lies, some disinformation. What can you say? If we look at, if we take a closer look at what has been said uh, in also the recent uh, month, um, I would highlight, for example, when Putin had his speeches at the um, marking the uh, Leningrad blockade, the uh, Battle of Stalingrad, uh, here this year, um, we saw an evolution of the narrative that basically uh, already back then in the battle uh, for Stalingrad, uh, the whole Europe was uh, against Russia, uh, every government in, in Europe uh, had contributed forces that were fighting the Soviet forces. And already back then, uh, Russia was, or the Soviet Union, uh, was uh, confronting uh, alone uh, with its own resources uh, all, the, all the other uh, countries in, in Europe. Obviously, this is a blatant lie. Uh, but but this uh, instrumentalization of the Stalingrad battle, uh, blockade of Leningrad, to suggest that there is uh, now the same situation as then, Russia fights alone, Soviet Union fought alone, it is encircled, uh, everybody needs to rally around the flag, be patriotic, sacrifice their own uh, needs, uh, and 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 uh, support the uh, the leadership of uh, Russia, like uh, like everybody supported the leadership of the Soviet Union. So so extending and reinventing or, or reinterpreting uh, the historic pasts. Um, I think also the uh, so this bunker feeling, this feeling of being encircled, uh, we stand alone, uh, everybody needs to be patriotic. Uh, this is this is driven to more extremes. And I'm sure that um, in the coming month, uh, as repression is also hardening back in Russia, um, every, every sign of opposition will be regarded as as treason uh, in front of the great uh, patriotic uh, cause um, i think also the what we have seen with uh, uh, trying to cover over the high casualties um, that uh, there is made uh, an even stronger parallel that everybody uh, that um, becomes a casualty of of the special military operation uh, is equal to to heroes of the Soviet Union, more or less. Um, so, therefore, uh, if critical voices question the military uh, operation that led to this or that casualty, uh, it'll be more or less equal to uh, a capsule criticism of, <clears throat> of the Russian army, hence also a criticism equal to, to criticism of, of the Red Army in, in the Soviet Union, um, uh, which we know is very, very bad looked upon. Uh, and, and this is kind of I think taking it to the extremes more and more, uh, more and more uh, over-exaggerations are engaged. Yes, I think coming back to this uh, point that Russia is presenting itself as alone, I mean, we, we, we cannot forget those, uh, that land lease, American land lease, that helps actually, helps Soviet Union to build its industry, military industry, and, and, uh, and uh, finally defend against Nazism 
um, in the in the first years in the first years of the war. And actually, uh, this Russian exceptionalism that is says that we have suffered from the Nazis, while we actually know that the nations who most suffered from the Nazism and Nazi occupation were not Russians, but Ukrainians, Belarusians, and Poles. At least these territories of these current countries were occupied, and only tiny parts of Russia were occupied. But at the same time, I, I feel it's kind of a strange, uh, because... What you said is one thing, this parallel between the current invasion and the Second World War. But at the same time, uh, we see a certain lack of this understanding in Russia. I think that it is sacred war or saint war or something like that. It is still presented as a special military operation, as something you know, very far, far away, something very remote, something you not need to care about. Uh, it, it is much more resembling the operation in Afghanistan, uh, like very far remote, far remote operation that uh, will not touch you. Or maybe if it it will touch you, if it, it if it touch somebody, that that somebody will not be you. So, do you think that Russian ideology is a kind of a trying to is is also a little bit schizophrenic in this respect? It trying it is trying to say that we are repeating the Second World War, but actually it's trying to do that so that nobody. Uh, nobody recognizes it, nobody mentions it, nobody nobody feels it, right? So it's a kind of a virtual repetition of the Second World War, something that is happening only in the phones, in the in the in this in the in the, in the t- on the TV screen, etc. Because I'm I'm really I'm really surprised uh, how less attention uh, the public in Russia pays to those people who die, those Russian soldiers who die on the front line. Of course, we are accustomed to the fact that they have no compassion to the Ukrainians who die, but at least to their own soldiers. They have no compassion to their own soldiers who die. And therefore, this is kind of a, a mixture between the real myth of the Second World War and the kind of a computer game or a movie about the Second World War. Do you do you have this feeling? Uh, yeah, I think that there is a certain, I think you used the word schizophrenic. Um, uh, there is obviously a dilemma uh, in the kind of uh, storifying the way in which the special military operation, so-called, um, is to be paralleled with with the uh, with the great patriotic war um, from forty one, uh, and I would fully subscribe to to this uh, so to speak problem that the manipulators uh, home in the Kremlin are are facing. Um, obviously, it is a, a difficult bridge for them to 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 span where one uh, would like that every Russian uh, rallies around the flag, offers full support to Putin, to the government, sacrifice uh, economic needs for, for the defense budget, um, and and whenever there is a call for uh, mobilization, uh, shows up at, at the, uh, the recruitment office. But of, of course, at the same time, trying to, to have this... Uh, normality uh, presentation that everything is okay, economy is developing, war is something that we can manage, no need to worry. Um, and and I think um, one of my own kind of theses that, that right now uh, the development is such that many Russian citizens would would see that, hey, okay, uh, they talk about this so-called special military operation. It is, by all accounts, what we call war. We are not stupid. Uh, We can see that whenever uh, activity like uh, the forces, uh, the Russian forces do in Ukraine, it's called war. And whenever there is this glory, each uh, television show, each news uh, broadcast has these heroes and cannons and whatever, this is called war. But <clears throat> so I actually think that it is enforcing a this schizophrenic um, 
aspect in, in Russian society. I mean, everybody who knows the word uh, that um, the authorities lie to us, we know that they lie, and they know that we know that they lie. Um, so we don't need to to believe it. We just have to show uh, by not going to the streets to demonstrate, by playing our role in the machinery, meet at the factory every day. And if we just keep a low profile, what I sometimes call we go in inner exile um, and we don't mess and we don't mix in the in the society debate, then we will be left alone. They will not come and hunt us. They will not repress us. Uh, but uh, it, it is a... I mean, human emotions are complex. We know that. That's no surprise. Um, and in, in times of war um, and the feeling of guilt uh, becomes one where public rejection i mean our human ability to reject forget dismiss uh, the uh, the uncomfortable and of course there's nothing like uh, if you feel that that your own forces are are basically going uh, to war uh, it is an uncomfortable feeling you try to gloss that over with uh, an argument oh we're just killing nazis um um, I also, I also think that we are here uh, more than uh, you know. We're into the fifteenth month of the of the full scale war. I think we can safely uh, suggest that the far majority of Russians know full well what's going on. Um, they follow social media. They follow TikTok, Atnaklasnikiv, Kontaktia, they see Telegram, they see YouTube, they hear stories from the neighbors, from families, and so on. Everybody knows full well what's going on. But um, they just reject the realization that this is a full war and uh, pretend to or, or feel comfortable with oh, but we can just buy the story that's promoted by by the state media that that it's it's an honest course against the Nazis. It, it it's a it's a very uh, schizophrenic. It's it's a very um, difficult, complex story full of dilemmas. I think it's very interesting, and you're right that, that there is a major difference compared to Soviet propaganda. That Soviet propaganda was actually demanding a citizen to believe. And if a citizen does not believe, uh, he or she can be sent to gulag or, or killed or whatever. While the current ideology, which which we can call postmodern fascism in Russia, as Tim Snyder puts it, I think it actually accepts that citizens do not believe. That citizens might not believe, that citizens are really cynical, and the power is cynical, and the citizens are cynical. So basically, this is... This is not blindfolded man. This is, these are these are the people who uh, consciously close their eyes. They consciously close their eyes. They cl- consciously uh, go to some segments of of information and communication and feel okay in these segments. And by the way, I mean these people can watch their TikToks and see only only their part of the reality, which is sent to them by these. Voinkori, uh, so the this propagandists on the front line, etc. So here my next question: How does it go into the pop culture in Russia? How is it present in the, in movies? How is it present in TikTok? How is it present in uh, in sketches in comedy, for example? How is, is how is it present in this imitation of the daily routine, everyday routine that actually a citizen can can uh, can plunge into and put all his or her energy and free time into this entertainment and therefore it will just cut his time from the capacity to look somewhere else. It, it's a very interesting <clears throat> phenomenon and, and development because... Uh, 
obviously uh, all the rulers uh, in and around Kremlin would would by now understand that the uh, ownership or the control of the uh, the pop culture scene the or everything that is uh, associated with art with um, with what's forming people's uh, emotions is a a high intensity battleground um, and uh, if I could start out from from the censorship laws that were enacted uh, in Russia shortly after um, um, the full-scale invasion began um, some 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 14 uh, months ago and say that this of course is illustrating a hypersensitivity by the Russian authorities to control the cognitive domain. And we can also see that the Araskamnatsor, the uh, agency, the supervisory agency for for the media landscape, uh, and uh, also the uh, agencies that are monitoring uh, uh, the uh, museums, the the, uh, art institutions, the big uh, producers of uh, the film industry, that these are uh, regarded as very important domains to control. Um, well, we actually saw uh, long before the full-scale uh, invasion that there was an, a shrinking space for the uh, the free development of, of artistic expression, be it in literature, be it in film, be it in TV production, and so on. Um, and, and, and there were great controversies. Um, I could also mention, if people can, can remember the, the, the very good movie, uh, Leviathan, um, in, in English, uh, Leviathan, um, which uh, I think Russians would know Leviathan, uh, um, which was, of course, highly critical of uh, a, a corrupt Russian state administration, provincial uh, oligarchs uh, mistreating uh, local population, uh, police brutality uh, vis-a-vis ordinary citizens, and so on and so forth. Um, and it was a very dark and depressing film uh, with uh, with a lot of criticism levied against the uh, the brutality cynicism by by authorities um, and 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 the controversy around that uh, almost to the extent where 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 Duma members in in Russia tried to uh, have it banned, tried to have the uh, director and the instructor uh, uh, fined uh, heavy fines, and and when it was uh, going to be screened in in movie theaters, uh, prevent this from happening. So I think where we are today, it is no surprise that uh, now with the censorship laws in place. There is such an insistence that we need to control this domain. So that was the repressive side. Then there is the proactive side that granting contracts to music producers, film producers, uh, people who will produce material that will flood the cognitive domain and and present, so to speak, the prop version of the story uh, is, is really being... Uh, uh, pumped out with uh, with with, uh, with great uh, in- enthusiasm. Um, so again, streamlining the the pop culture, music scene. Uh, we know how powerful pop music can be in forming people's uh, opinions. Uh, the the ear hangers, uh, uh, texts, uh, patriotic uh, texts. So. So, so the pop culture can seem uh, from the outside, the untrained eye would say, oh, you know, this is not really important, but it, it's hugely important. And, and, and they are hypersensitive uh, inside the Kremlin and the Russian authorities to, to controlling this domain. Um, is it successful? That's, that's uh, again, 
I think when we analyze what's going on inside Russia, we have to uh, accept that with the with the control uh, being so heavy, censorship, strong fines for stepping outside the um, the uh, the narrow uh, path uh, marked by by the authorities, then then there is a, a certain effect. Um, TV shows, um, uh, and I think the also the the uh, art scene, the museums uh, that unless they follow the party line, they they will lose their funding. They'll get closed. They run the risk of being prosecuted for for uh, smearing the uh, or, or being uh, criticizing. Uh, officials being criticizing the Russian army and things like that. Um, so it is it is a highly contested uh, domain, the cognitive domain um, and, and great uh, uh, great pressure is applied uh, there. Yeah, so I think that this pop culture actually played two roles in Russia and uh, the one role uh, to which, many people actually paid attention to and in Ukraine there are many organizations who studied it I mean how the this Russian pop culture was actually a tool of propaganda how this ideology was created through movies for example starting from Brad 2 Brother 2 and 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 uh, many other movies which are uh, creating this um, positive image of a uh, of a Red Army soldier during the Second World War, or even of NKVD officer, uh, or a KGB officer, or even of policeman, uh, and this this is pretty much understandable. I remember, for example, uh, watching a movie about Transnistria, where, uh, of course, the Moldovans were showed as absolutely uh, criminals and stupid. And even the Transnistrians, so the Russian Russian allies in Transnistria, were also shown kind of an, in a negative way. But the only positive image was of these 2,000-something soldiers, of real Russian soldiers who are staying there. But on the other hand, there is another element I think it's very, very important, is creating this, uh, this escapist idea, that escapist feeling like... Okay, you just care of your private life. You you should not be interested in politics. Politics is not yours. You're not a citizen. You're just a physical human being who thinks about money, sex, edu- um, uh, recreation, uh, you know, expensive goods, etc. And this is what we have seen in Russian comedy sphere, this comedy club and all this stuff. And it's interesting how... Ukrainian comedy and Russian comedy, Ukrainian comedy now, these stand-ups, and Russian comedy shows are so much different. Because Ukrainian comedy stand-ups today are really showing us citizens who are you know, joking about the government, joking about themselves, who are ordinary citizens, who look like ordinary citizens, non-glamorous at all, you know, uh, sometimes very, very modest-looking. And this Russian comedy of Comedy Club and other projects, which really gives you an idea of a glamorous exit, exit life, life some, somewhere else, not in the reality. And I think this creation, this kind of a not, met, not ideological propaganda, that's a very important thing that Russia, Russia was using. But let me ask uh, maybe a final question. What do you think whether this propaganda about the the war, uh, the the so-called Great Patriotic War, the so-called Victory Day, whether it's working outside Russia. Uh, because I will tell you what I think. Uh, I think that for many people around the world, uh, before this full-scale invasion, invasion, Russia was uh, attractive because of this image of force. Because Putin was presented as a strong man, a strong hand, and therefore... It was very popular among the European far right, etc. Now Putin is no longer a strong man. But there is a, a problem that Russia will rather reverse its narratives. Uh, and rather than presenting itself as a strong country with a strong leader, it will present itself as a victim. 
as a victim of America, as a victim of Europe, as a victim of fascism, as a victim of everything else, and will say, look, I am a victim and you are victims. Uh, Non-Western countries are victims, China is a victim, India is a victim, so go with me. I'm actually suffering in this war. And one of the narratives which really like blows up my mind that Russia was developing since the full-scale invasion is that this is a war of genocide against Russians. So imagine how they reverse the pyramid. They're saying this is not a, a war of Russia against Ukrainians and genocide of Ukrainians. This is a war provoked by the West to make a genocide of Russians. So do you see that trend? How does it work outside of Russia and trying to present Russia as a victim of its own war? I think the um, the situation is, is a bit mixed um, because the insistence i fully subscribe to to your analysis that that russia do try to turn everything upside down black into white uh, you know uh, right into wrong uh, and and vice versa so um trying to present itself as the west has started the war against russia and russia is only only defending itself the the rate of success um is uh sometimes it can be difficult to to measure if because if we also talk about countries uh, 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 globally um uh, one thing of course is what governments in 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 other countries you know in Central Asia it can be in China it can be Latin America it can be across in Africa uh, what they offer for for uh, tacit support uh, to Russia in in global forums like the UN General Assembly, like do they subscribe to to adhering to to uh, to uh, EU sanctions uh, against Russia, um, and 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 then of course there is uh, an aspect about how does uh, these narrative resonate with it with a broader population. Um, we can see that Moscow deploys great efforts uh, across their platforms, uh, such as uh, RT, Russia Today, Sputnik, uh, language versions in in all the uh, the major languages around the world to to try and um, beam the messages across uh, into into the populations. Um, from a position where there was not so much success with that, of course, they, they have scored uh, some some headway. I think we need to, uh, again, not just uh, uh, fall, uh, fall uh, over and, and say, well, Russia is 10 foot tall, there's nothing we can do about it. I think that will be, be wrong. We can see, it's interesting to, to study the one of the recent Gallup uh, international opinion polls about the perception of of Russia across the world. Um, And it actually showed that the prestige of Russia, if you want, has uh, gone down uh, in in very many countries, including those neighboring Russia, some of the Central Asian um, states. Uh, and, And this somehow questions or challenging conventional wisdom that, that Russia is 10 foot tall and, and, and almighty successful in, in their propaganda. Um, of course, as I said before, we should not be victorious saying, oh, we have already defeated them in the cognitive domain. That's far from the case. But um, I think that the longer the kinetic war, the war on the battlefield goes on, it becomes more and more difficult to convince uh, every audience around the world that, uh, well, we are under attack and Russia's uh, fundamental existence is challenged and therefore we got to uh, bomb uh, baby hospitals uh, in a neighboring country. I think this becomes uh, increasingly difficult to sell uh, across in, in all audiences. Uh, there will always be some areas, some groups 
target audiences where, where this can run. Sometimes I think we should also uh, not confuse um, the uh, action of, of, of some governments around the world, whether they side with the European Union, the G7, with Ukraine, uh, or abstain votes in, in the General Assembly. Is this necessary be- necessarily because they fully buy into to Moscow's narratives? Uh, there may be other reasons, more kind of um, ordinary uh, uh, diplomatic political uh, reasons, so to speak. Um, uh, and I think what is definitely the case is that this uh, full-scale war has taught us uh, around in many uh, corners of the world that disinformation in the age of uh, artificial uh, assisted uh, bots uh, of uh, proliferated social media is that we need to take it serious. We need to understand that it is a fundamental threat to the functioning of our democratic conversation in our in our societies and it has the capability to undermine if we do not take it serious some of the basic uh, ways in which we form our opinions um, and and i think if we look across especially across the european union I don't think that there is any election of, of any more important uh, nature where where the organizers will not ask the question, have we taken proper steps to uh, guard the integrity of the process? And, and I also think that uh, across in all societies, universities, think tanks, um, uh, whatever institutions, media, large media corporations, that the understanding that disinformation manipulation is being levied against us we need to understand the techniques we need to to uh, to recognize it and 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 see which challenge does it present to our own operation be it a media be it a whatever um, entity yes this is this is definitely true this is definitely true and um I think I agree with you that the future looks doesn't look very bright with the development of uh, artificial intelligence, with, with the development of uh, deep fakes, with the development of uh, the technology which can actually fake any photo. I mean, we need, of course, much more capacity of a citizen to at least take this information critically. So we're probably entering a much more, uh, much more gloomy period than uh, we were thinking when we were engaging into social networks with so much positive emotions around human communication, etc. But let's let's hope that uh, the enlightenment will prevail. Uh, this is actually yeah, yeah, could, yeah, yeah. Could I? I would. I would like to to offer. Sorry for interrupting you. I would like to offer. Um, a, a thought I, I think definitely it's a challenge but I would also say that we have before uh, seen that we can face up to these these challenges everything um, can be you know doom and gloom but we also have power we also have capacity if we mobilize our, our forces like we did uh, during the, um, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Um, and I think that the steps we are taking uh, inside the European Union, the Digital Services Act, the Defend Democracy packages and so on, and the recognition that, for example, when we are preparing for the European Parliament elections next year, that we need to take this serious. Um, and, and one thing, I would very much uh, point to is we should not underestimate our society's ability to react and sh- grow resilience if we define the problem, if we show the problem, if we say, okay, this is the magnitude and scale and character of it. Um, um, I don't want to be sounding like like a naive optimist, but rather like 
a staunch defender of our societies have been challenged before um, with very serious uh, problems. Uh, and we have found, through good cooperation, uh, a, an adequate response. And importantly, without um, compromising the basic functioning of our society. I mean, we haven't developed into authoritarianism. Uh, we haven't fallen down the trap of, well, this information is here, so therefore we need broad censorship everywhere. Um, and we need to limit people's freedom to express themselves uh, because we cannot uh, allow them the opportunity to discuss uh, freely. Um, so while I certainly recognize uh, the challenges you you, uh, you describe um, and artificial intelligence and, and, and uncontrolled uh, uh, proliferation of, of uh, machine-generated uh, content that, that looks very similar to, to, to classic journalism, good-style good journalism, I, I would say that we just need to take it serious. We need to find common approaches. Um, and what I think that the very horrific war uh, that you and Ukraine are living through every day um, can inspire us is that you live through these problems, uh, challenges, uh, horrific attacks uh, every day. And what goes on in Ukraine, we can analyze that and see, okay, this is the nature of the battle. How do we also in our own societies build up our capacity to, to challenge and confront that? Um, I think that's, that's, that, is, that is very important. That's a very good thing to, to finalize our conversation to understand that Ukraine is an inspiration for Europe and Ukraine is certainly a student of Europe, but also a teacher at some point. And I think this is the true nature of any education that we exchange our experience and there is something that we can learn from you and there is something that you can learn from us. Thank you so much, Sören. Uh, Sören uh, was a guest of our podcast, Thinking in Dark Times, which is a series uh, within the podcast Explaining Ukraine by Ukraine World. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org and our series Thinking in Dark Times. This series seeks to make Ukraine and the current war a focal point of our common reflection about the world's present, past and future. We try to see the light through and despite the current darkness. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our volunteer trips to the frontline areas at paypal.ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.